Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you this evening to tonight's event. It is the third and final event in a series that we've been doing, which has sort of run in parallel to a show that we have had on since uh, the beginning of June. It's called Floating Ideas and it entails 70 works that um, Peter Cook submitted to the summer exhibition since the 1970s. And it's a fantastic array of work that he sort of realised that the Academy presented an opportunity to take work that he'd been doing, particularly at the AA, and it, within a very sort of tight architectural circle, and put it into the public, in front of, as he would say, the sort of ladies who come up from Guildford to look at some nice pictures of Robins, and they suddenly come across this you know, really exciting architectural work, and that was the opportunity to do so. And the show is in the architecture space in the Royal Academy. It's set up of one wall which has got sort of unbuilt projects and the other wall which has built projects. And in discussions with Peter, it was interesting to say, you know, that the relationship, you know, the conversation between these blurs, you know, many of the projects in the unbuilt section sparked those in the built section. You could imagine that they were there ripe to be built or those, the ideas of traces back 15 years in a drawing will be sort of have it be manifest somewhere else in a project. Now he's got that, that opportunity to do so. And I think Peter's always sort of is a very vocal um, supporter of architecture, which is sort of courageous. It doesn't conform to the norm. It's not the sort of stuff which melts into the background, but it, it does something, it says something, it furthers the discussion about architecture. So in thinking about this evening, we wanted to sort of the title of architecture on the edge, I guess, is a proposition to say, you know, perhaps it is on the marginal, it's outside of the sort of the mainstream that, that architectural ideas progress, perhaps through sort of integration with other disciplines, perhaps not being responding just to a brief or a client or being caught in the kind of the way in which architectural culture develops. Um, and what does that mean? What is that margin? Is it about geography? Um, how does one, does it, by sitting a little bit outside of the mainstream, does it enable you to look back into it? Is there such thing as a mainstream? Or actually can you kind of be much more radical actually in the centre than you can on the outside? Um, these are some ideas I hope we might pick up and also to sort of examine, I think, architectural culture. We have three really exciting speakers this evening um, who are going to talk us through a number of their projects, some of their ideas, and then they'll be joined by Peter and myself on the panel and we'll have a discussion. Hopefully there'll be plenty of time for that. Um, so without further ado, I would like to invite Wolfgang Chapella to come and talk to us about some of his projects. He was um, he's a Viennese-based architect who was educated in Vienna as well as um, Cornell University where he taught um, extensively. He's now Professor of Architecture at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna and the head of the Institute of Art and Architecture there. He's got a vast and quite incredible portfolio of work. A probably disproportionate number of it, amount of it is built to the unbuilt. It'd be lovely to see more of those unbuilt projects built. Um, but has also done a lot of work in exhibitions and a leader, I think, in <coughs> architectural teaching as well. So, Wolfgang. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. I start with an image which is in fact not part of my work, but somehow the work of, of Bosch and Hieronymus Bosch is in the Academy of Fine Arts. There is in the painting gallery directly underneath the architecture studio, there is the last judgment. 
And uh, it's always an experience when one sees how the last judgment radiates up to architecture. It's a painting which was done 500 years ago. And what I show you here is a section. It's a part of the Garden of the Earthly Delights. And there is one special figure in that wild tort which I always call the architect. It's the one with the glass helmet. Uh, one might refer to Holland and Bichler and others. Uh, in a way, I would like to leave it like that. Uh, I'm working in an architectural practice, and I think this is really the center point of my activity. I spent almost 100% there and another 100% perhaps at the academy, but it's really important. The architectural work in the practice, uh, what I show you here is one project which is major and important. It was for the University of Applied Arts. On the right-hand side, you see the brick building which was done in the 1870s. On the left side, you see a concrete building which was done in the 1970s. And in the middle, we proposed in 2012 a membrane structure. Now, how did that come into being? The University for Applied Arts needed space. They wanted to have an additional building. We didn't give them an additional building. We took out of the existing building the stairs, the elevator course, the toilets. And that is the way they got their space. And we could build this membrane structure, proposed to build that membrane structure in there, which went up to construction documents and what was stopped then by the Ministry of Finances in Austria. Another project which is still ongoing, it is started in 2012 uh, in Belgrade, New Belgrade, uh, a center for promotion of science, a science center on a block for universities. And it's an elevated, perhaps exaggerated, elevated volume of 75 by 75 meters following the tradition and the ideology of New Belgrade. And the third one, Fine Arts Library in Cornell, Cornell University in the background, you see Sible Dome, then a piece which was added by Omar de Milstein Hall, and then Rand Hall, with something on top which is in fact not what the library is, but it is the bearing element of elements which are hung. Every beam of that large extension on top is having a slab of books which are hanging on it. This is ongoing and hopefully constructed soon. A building which was exercised on a smaller scale, but has the ideas of the big ones and the interior of it. I would like to talk about three topics today. One is structures, one is figures, and the third one, I, I hope I, I still can talk about it, is machines, structures. The city of Salzburg uh, was, was somehow always stimulating to me, not because of its urban identity, but because of its topography. And uh, there are the two hills in the city, and uh, since long time I was somehow thinking what would be if one would place a beam on top of that. Now this beam, in the meantime, we, we made it as a project. We put that image out there. It's an 850 meter long construction, which needs to be 65, centime uh, uh, 50, 65 meters high and 35 
meters wide. Uh, that is what the structural engineers say. We could do it. One could do it. And uh, we propose to have it out there as something which one needs to think about. Now, this is a project which comes out of an architectural practice without having a client. And I would say even a client would not want to have it. But it needs to be there, I would say. Figures. Now, in 2010, we started a research which is based on the figure, and I would say the architectural figure or that what we are, the substance, the human substance in the end. Why did we do that? Because I think if we don't consider that figure in architecture as a major uh, tuning element, we are not, not able to change architecture. Christina, you see her here, she is trying Vitruve. She is trying the proportions of Vitruve on the right image, you see a split image. One is the Vitruvian proportion applied onto her and the other one is a natural proportion. They do not fit, Vitruve doesn't fit to that time it seems. Uh, then there is a moment uh, in the 60s of the last century and earlier where Rudowski comes into place, he says, Rudowski says, well, perhaps it's not necessarily that we are looking at architectural design, perhaps we should look at, at what the substance of us is, what, what is the human as a construction site. And on the right-hand side in the image you see, you can't read it, but it is a collection of patents which companies, commercial companies, impose on the human body. So the human body is construction site, it is territory, it is place to build, it is, you can buy it, you can buy parts of the human body in order to place commercial products in it. Corp, on the Vitruvian side, Marco Ferreri in the Big Feast demolishes Corp, and then there is uh, the moment of the eames when they start to go from the vertical to the horizontal when there is not one figure anymore but when the figures are stretched out on the ground and on the left side Sanford Quinter poses in the 90s a image which is called free climber figure in time. Now this is basically the shift of the paradigm where the human body is stretching according to the environment. Now it's not anymore the figure which is defining in the sense of corp of the modular or vitruve, the space is around, but the space and the environment, the surface around defines the behavior of the figure and of the human. In 2011, we started to construct digital entities human digital figures which are projected and had a, a let's say, a limited reactivity. Uh, this was in 2012. Uh, in the meantime, we are further. This is one of the studies we are making, how one can shift between different identities. What we have here is a figure which is, is made out of three casts of real existing persons, one being Carla, the other one being Carlet, and the third one being Herbert. 
it's the figure, then the machines. Uh, for the city of uh, Maribor in Slovenia, we proposed a bridge. They were asking for a bridge, in fact, for a pedestrian bridge. Now the dilemma was wherever you would position that bridge, it wouldn't be right. So we decided to have a bridge which is, in essence, moving in the city and moving in different positions. And that bridge is somehow, now this is accelerated as a video, but you need to imagine an element in a city which is permanently moving and you would not realize it, but on one day it's here, on the other day it's there. It would move and one wouldn't realize it, but it would destabilize your habits and your attitudes in the city. It was one of the machinic projects or one of the elements we proposed for cities. And the last one I want to show you is a conceptual design, it started with a clock maker's family and it consists of two discs which are permanently rotating and <coughs> shifting towards each other and producing different spatial configurations. Thank you. to invite Raoul Bunshotten up. Raoul is also operating between the world of academia and teaching and practice. He teaches here at the CAS in London as well as at the Technical TU in uh, Berlin um, where he's Professor of Sustainability and Urban Planning. And um, in, he's also leads, uh, founded and directed the Practice Cora um, in 1994, which originated from a research laboratory. And they sort of operate, I think I'm sure we'll talk about it, but they operate in clusters between Berlin, Beijing and London. And are quite really interested in developing new methods of architecture and urban design um, that really help to mitigate um, and adapt to the challenges, the important challenges that are coming up with climate change. So, Raoul, thank you. Yes, hello. Thank you, Kate. Uh, the city's brain is some, this the, the phrase we more and more play with in the era of, uh, of both digitalization and, uh, and uh, climate change. So <clears throat> I'm going to spend a few minutes on the plug and play toolbox for the conscious city. We've just uh, renamed our department in, in, uh, in Berlin as the, the conscious city chair. And it has to do with the, 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 the finishing of the wave of smart city, right? We've had this big wave of, of smart city. It's been an incredible kind of strong development and a hype, I should say, at the same time. And we're now we're kind of over the top at the end. Although if you go to, to London or Berlin, where I mostly work now, and, and so you go ask the city officials, where is the... Berlin Smart City, you, you don't really find it. It hasn't really been built. So, a few, a few building blocks. I want to show you some thoughts about that. So, of course, city systems are complex. We like to model them. We like to model traffic systems, and we have now the tools to turn traffic systems into smart systems. <coughs> We're actually standing here in the corridor of Imperial College. 
in front of the department that does brain analysis. And of course, they're interested in manipulating the brain. And we're interested in, in manipulating the city as, a, as, a, as perhaps becoming brain. Now, of course, this is an homage to, to Peter and the whole phrase of plug-in, you cannot use it without going back to plugging, plug-in city, the work of Peter in, within the group of Archigram. And of course, in a work of extraordinary uh, uh, in imagination, in fact, you know, more and more, if now if we look at imaginary things, we, we end up going back to Archigram or Constant and say, hey, wait a second. They were already onto this theme. Now, somebody else that I actually worked quite close with for a while, not at this time, but a little bit later, was Gordon Pask, one of the fathers of cybernetics. Uh, but he overlapped a lot with, with Peter and later with me at the Architectural Association. Uh, Gordon Pask worked on learning machines, and he was one of the earliest who started to, to, to position this, this phrase of artifi artificial intelligence. Can machines begin to have their own intelligence and therefore consciousness. So that, that's as far as this goes back. At the time that he was teaching with me, I had absolutely no clue what cybernetics was. But later on, I started to, to, to understand better and learn. And now I have a feeling this is what post-smart city era should be about, about responsive and learning systems. Here's an installation of Gordon Pask in the uh, <coughs> cybernetic serendipity exhibition, 61 in the ICA. And, uh, and he's Peter trying to interact with a very similar type of machine. These, this is built by Graft, the, the Graft office in, in Berlin. I think it was somewhere in the north of, uh, of Europe. Uh, but maybe you can correct me. So the question is, how do you interact with these, uh, these machines? And perhaps one step up, how do you interact with the, with the world as a set of systems? And I refer to the kind of duality of the first skin of the Earth, which is nature, and the second skin of the Earth, which is basically human sapiens applying its systems everywhere. Now in <coughs> London Met, where I taught for a while, we did some, uh, we did some exercises in how do you map uh, global forces. How do you create 3D maps? These are two uh, spheres of, uh, of Henry Jones, who sits uh, right here. Uh, <coughs> and we were looking at, at uh, basically energy movements or, or food uh, uh, transport across the, the world and understanding how does it affect uh, our, our, our lifestyle. This is, uh, it looks so strange, this is the world. But this is a world modeled through energy data. It models actually the energy flows from any point on, on the Earth to another point, this, is, this model is one point in time. This is a 3D model, one point in time. This is by Steve Watson, a colleague of Henry at the, on the Met. And here you see actually the, <coughs> the more the data set up. So, <coughs> so it's based completely on, on data, and it's, a, of course, a real-time moving, uh, moving model. Here you see some of the data and the way that it was constructed. <coughs> of course, how do, we, how do we interact with this kind of world? How do we live with it? Because, of course, these systems of data land <coughs> in the city, right? Through our devices, uh, we move now through the cities. We live in the cities. We hope to prosper in cities, but we also hope to survive in the world. And now that the kind of data is this, the, the, last, the, the, the topology of data is the same scale as climate change, there's a chance that right? we can kind of equate those two things. So we've started for many years now, started to look at the toolboxes that interact between these two skins of the world. And here you see 
a glimpse of some work we started to do in, in Berlin with authorities partly and <coughs> utilities and building up uh, toolboxes to, to interact uh, with real-time forces in the city. Here you see a glimpse of, of such a toolbox. Of course, we are aiming very much at, 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 at tackling climate change. That's our main kind of uh, purpose. So we look at a full range. Then what we are trying to do is, uh, is develop tools with which, on the one hand, we can understand performance, so we can see performance of these worlds of systems uh, in order to get a grasp on, on where climate change is taking us. But at the same time, these spaces are about human interaction, and they are what we call new, new democracy spaces. But how do we negotiate with each other to set the priorities of what we want to do? And, and there it goes very low tech, where we, build, we develop cards and we play games. And so then we link back to technology as a dashboard where we can interact with certain, certain models. So that was the first prototype, prototype we did three years ago. Two years ago, we started with a bigger prototype of the brain box, which is this, this performance space and the new democracy space. This was shown this year, early this year. In, uh, in Berlin, in the uh, Long Night of Sciences, and in the Metropolitan Solutions Dialogue, uh, where we had uh, in collaboration with a, a range of sponsors and, and utilities of the city. In, a, in, a, in the front, you see the different layers of, of the so-called smart city. And on the, on the side, you see a map of uh, Berlin, where, where we actually land with this toolbox. So inside, we, we, we have an interactive table. We have interactive maps. And where we where we look at issues, we, we we plan together. But a little bit back on the table, you see the cards with which we try to create a, an interactive database. So we link both to models, but at the same time we use it as a game uh, to negotiate which scenarios do we want to develop, where do we want to go, what kind of future do we want to have, and the whole idea is that that's that is really aimed at a kind of very young uh, kind of public, right? Kids can play. Although actually we just did. A, and at a workshop with, uh, with authorities in Berlin. It's a serious tool as well. <laughs> now you see a little bit of the way we shape the interior of this, this brain box. It runs for, uh, yeah, thank you. So, yeah, that's good. For a minute, again, that's some materials that Henry uh, worked on. We try to kind of, as architects, we try to visualize data and the way we kind of take, we lift clusters out of, out of the, the big data landscape uh, in, in order to create meaning. And then the meaning, of course, has to do with the way that we, we organize this, we interact with it, but also that, that, and the way that we, we live in, in, in a city, in the second skin of the, the earth. So just imagine what, what looks like a long strip here is actually four screens. And the, uh, and the screens, they, 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 they handle the information that you effectively negotiate. Of course, these type of graphs, we want to be meaningful. Uh, Right. We want to lower emissions and things, and things like that. But the whole idea is that uh, that it is an immersive environment. It's a very old idea. I've I've had a long, lifelong fascination with Byzantine churches, and believe it or not, this comes straight out of the, my my analysis of years. What happens in a in a in a in the kind of Neoplatonic space that's created in a Byzantine church. So here you see a bit more the, the function of it. This is driving a car, getting into using smart city tools. And, and the, the, this image here is the typical kind of topo new type of topology, the way we draw cities these, these days in order to, to understand how we interact with them. And the third level of the prototype is the so-called Cora Brain Box, which we're now developing 
in China in two places. One, this is the Tianjin prototype close to Beijing, a big harbor city. And now you see that we have split up the data processing, which is the cube in front, and the, the actual brain box is the public space, this new democracy space, which sits in the, uh, in the disused uh, cooling tower of the power plant in the center of uh, Tianjin. It's a work in progress, but it hasn't yet, yet happened. Uh, <clears throat> here you see the split between kind of the plug-in of the data processing on the, uh, the right side and then the public space, which is this, this primal cube. And here you see some versions of it. We talked to a lot of companies, uh, those companies we didn't like so much before, IBM and, and so on, and uh, Nokia, that all want to move into the into the next generation. And just imagine these props of paper being these kinds of companies that bring their, their systems into the brain box in order to negotiate together how the system works. We had a small prototype built in Shanghai. We were working there with a very large project developer. He, this is, an, again, a very simple version of the brain box, but you see there's a map of Shanghai in front where we're working on the, the smart city Shanghai plan, of which we recently won part of in through a competition. Here you see a much more complex version of the toolbox landing in Shanghai. But actually, again, the simplicity, you see the, the CEO of the, of the company that's leading this is called the China Fortune. <laughs> Looking at the cards that contain the, that represent this, uh, uh, this, this toolbox, and the guy with the white glasses, my friend, Yu Yang Liu, our partner in Shanghai. We even see, have a more simplified version of this, this toolbox in, in the, with the use of dice. And with the dice, again, we, we like to really go into teaching again. We, we like to teach the people that, how to build their own city, how to construct. Uh, their own conscious city, as we call it. So all these icons, they kind of relate to components in the, in, the, uh, in the toolbox. And we did one installation in Chengdu called Chengdu Smart City, where we had very young people playing with the... What you see on the table is a map of the ring of Chengdu, which we proposed as a design. What we didn't design is the interaction of the people with the dice. And that's maybe, this image is one of the images I'm most proud of, of anything we've done. Just look at the, the intensity of the gaze of these, 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 these girls building their thing. They don't know what they're doing, but they actually are involved in smart city planning. We can now move on to that, that term. So the, the kind of playfulness is such an important thing in order to understand at what point the city, through its robotic systems, is becoming a brain and thereby is becoming perhaps a kind of parallel consciousness to the one that we have as human, as human sapiens. That's probably the next stage of the era of, uh, of humans on, on Earth. Thank you very much. Um, now we have Keiichi Matsuda, who trained at the Bartlett, and as he said, sort of in the conceptual world of the Bartlett and moved sideways into the conceptual world of, as a designer and filmmaker. Um, and his research really looks at and examines the implications of emerging technologies for human perception. And very much interested in dissolving the boundaries between the real and the virtual. So he's going to describe his project and show us. So. I'm just going to show you one project today. I work now as, as a kind of independent designer. I work in concept design. I work in films. Um, and I work across lots of different industries. Uh, across, I've been recently working in um, tech and VR and then uh, automotive design, kind of futures thinking stuff. Uh, but my background is in architecture. Um, and I suppose now I've brought 
some of the skills from learning that and applying them now to trying to understand how we can bring emerging technologies and use them, combining them with architecture to make completely new types of spaces that just wouldn't have been able to exist before. Um, when I was studying, uh, I graduated in 2010, but while I was studying, I was kind of always felt very frustrated in the discipline of architecture that I wasn't able to engage with all these really interesting conversations that were happening at the time and still are around network culture, around the way we use consumer technology and around all these different new processes which are, are developing now. Um, so my fourth year was spent struggling with that and then in my fifth year I discovered augmented reality. Um, I don't know if everybody here is familiar with augmented reality. Uh, for those of you who are not aware of the term, um, it's a technology that you can use to overlay um, digital information into the physical world. So you can imagine like wearing, well actually the, the example that everyone knows about, the easiest one to do is Pokemon Go. Right, so Pokemon Go, you can bring up, hold up your phone, you see the real world, and you see little Pokemon standing in there. That's augmented reality. But in the future, you can imagine that you could wear a pair of glasses or even contact lenses and see everything that you could see on a screen, but you would be able to throw it up wherever you want. In fact, it would, it would get rid of the need for screens. We wouldn't need any of that stuff anymore. Um, and it might sound a little bit like a fringe interest at the moment, but Silicon Valley is throwing their weight behind augmented reality in a big way. I mean, this, it's big money. There's a, 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 all of the big tech companies are investing in it. Um, there's a secretive startup called Magic Leap, which has nearly $2 billion worth of investment, I think. Um, and we don't even know, you know what it is yet. But basically, the whole of, of Silicon Valley is, is betting that this is going to be the next big thing. Um, I was really interested in augmented reality because it's a spatial medium. It's not, it's not like the interaction that we've been dealing with before, which is in servers and big data, which I find, you know, it was great to see your presentation, but I still find it very difficult to understand and, and, and conceptualize and bring my skills to. Um, or it exists in kind of smartphones and tablets and this 2D stuff, but now we're going into an age with VR and AR where we're able to, to actually deal with data and deal with, uh, with interfaces which are spatial and interactive as well. So during that time uh, in my master's, I started this project that I'm still continuing to this day. Um, it's a, a kind of a speculative and critical project uh, about the future uh, in the context of augmented reality, but also other emerging technologies as well. So here's a polemic. Um, it's a difficult time to be an architect at the moment. Uh, the profession can often be quite thankless. It's low paid, it's compromised, often undervalued. Um, a lot of the time you're serving rich clients or institutions which can sometimes themselves be you know, corrupt or broken in some, time, in some way and you're very rarely serving any higher purpose or higher ideal. Um, and we've learned to practice within these narrow parameters uh, that are set to us by late capitalism. It's limiting, it's sometimes backwards and sometimes boring. Um, but if the practice of designing buildings is somewhat stagnating, you couldn't say the same thing about spatial design as medium. Um, this particular project, Hyperreality, has allowed me to, to, you know, because people watch it online, they come to me and say, can you help out with this project or whatever? So I, I've got to work across lots of different industries. Um, and there are so many emerging areas of spatial design where architects can make a big difference. Um, obviously, there's things like video games. Uh, the rise of VR is going to be like a massive thing as well. Um, there's lots of interesting mixed reality experiences happening now. There's a company called The Void who are making these interesting uh, uh, kind of mixed reality experiences where you put, on a, uh, you put on a headset, but you can also kind of 
touch the walls, so the kind of theme parks, but part virtual reality. If you search for hyperreality, you'll find my film, but you'll also find their stuff because they've stolen Tim. Um, and then also there's, there's things like uh, another project we've been working on is, is a concept uh, working with a startup in Silicon Valley uh, for an operating system for virtual reality, which is all spatial. So rather than having your kind of keyboard and your mouse and your icons on a desktop, we're kind of trying to rebuild it from the ground up using voice, using gesture, and using spaces to be able to do the things you would do on a computing system. Uh, it's quite early days, but the idea is potentially this could eventually replace your traditional desktop environment. Um, and this kind of last category about VR is under just enormous growth at the moment. There's so much money going around, um, and it's perfect for architects. It's perfect, but it's being handled by programmers. Um, and I think the things that all these things have in common is that they use spatial design in, in kind of a functional way uh, to express something else, something bigger. Uh, and I think a lot of architecture that we talk about now has become an architecture which has become slightly obsessed with its own image. Uh, and it, it attempts to kind of transcend its physical location, its limitations, by becoming this kind of larger icon. Um, today, I think what we've got is technology being probably the biggest driver of change in our world today. And I think as architects, we should have a responsibility to, to engage with those things, engage with that conversation. Um, I think the intellectual cutting edge of architecture has to remove itself from this very compromised practice of building design. And I think that this is maybe one way, by focusing on the new possibilities afforded to us by uh, technology, uh, we can play a bigger part in, in defining what the future is. That's all. Thanks. Um, perhaps maybe we can ask you to reflect a little bit, I guess, on, the, um, on what you've seen tonight and how you think each of these protagonists might be progressing sort of a discussion about architecture. I think they are all, all progress, progressing the discussion, but uh, it, inevitably, having been around a bit, that uh, it recalls various things that have been hobby horses or worries or, I mean, I've got a whole load of <laughs> notes here which will keep me going for about an hour, but I'll try and truncate it to about eight minutes. Um, I think one thing, and, and then they're in sort of order as it came up as you spoke, or that were prompted by things, but one is the field of operations. I think that, and that comes to, loop to you, that, the, that in archigram time, you're always saying the field of operations was too narrow and the vocabulary was too narrow, restricted to looking back to architecture only. Um, conversations between the built and the unbuilt, I think that's, you know, what was interesting about what you did is you also, which I thought had almost gone out of fashion, you did projects that didn't, weren't even competitions. You did them because sometimes, I mean, you do competitions and sometimes you win them, but often you don't, like us, but you also have to do projects that don't have any trigger except your wish to suggest something or prove something. And competitions get more and more narrow and more and more difficult to find that will even remotely prompt that, even if you do them not wanting to win but to use them as an excuse. So in the end, you're, you know, people like you and I, I, dare I say, not that many people are thrown back onto simply saying, I'm doing this for no money, no, no likelihood of remotely it being built, but it has to be talked about. Somebody has to put it on the table. Uh, I think there is, so these are in funny order. 
the thing of teaching and, and, and activities that go on within school, and you're the most recent out of school, and you're still referring back to what was going on in a place we know well, mm. uh, and, and really jumping off from corners of what was going on there and then making it your own territory. And I think that one worry I have is that more and more academies are getting narrower and narrower. I think that in, I was very lucky in my early days of teaching that the, some of the schools seem to be opening up. And now I feel more and more schools are closing down, becoming more and more cons you know, to do with worried people who want to get a job and so they don't do funky stuff that won't get them, a, won't be a portfolio that they can show a possible job. And I heard the most depressing thing today, which is that there are students now uh, in Scandinavia who even look, to, they choose their school based upon its effect upon whether they will get a mortgage. And these are people in their 20s. And I found that the most depressing thing I'd heard. Of. Uh, so there's this client-free thing that, that raised. And I was saying in the anteroom earlier that I don't think we've ever done a job that has an actual person client. They've tended to be corporate. Uh, I can't handle clients, maybe. Uh, the, the key underlying thing, I'm delighted that you showed Gordon Pass, because Gordon Pass, for me, is sort of a fountain point of a whole, not only cybernetics per se, but the whole thing of lateral thing, of territories moving into other territories, moving into territories that you have an instinct might reverberate back on you. They might be interfacial, if that's the term, or they might be just spreading that, and it's no surprise to find that, you know, the, the, one of the key architects who works with Pascal was Cedric Price. And, and to go, and, and, and it recalls a lovely period when Ron Heron and I, and obviously Cedric at the time, would go to this place in Richmond, which was in a roof, which had a dog walking around, and loads and loads of wires going through a plaster wall, and lots of young scientist girls who were all in love with Gordon, who did, who constantly popped pills, had his watch constantly set on a time that was nothing to do with real time, uh, wrote operas and, and did surrealist paintings uh, and would mispronounce words quite deliberately uh, and, and, and had a crooked bow tie and, and a rather dirty jacket. I mean, I, I put that into just as a sort of theatrical thing, which is, I think he would not be, you know, he'd be pushed, sent to the door now, but he was doing stuff with the Royal Air Force. So clearly, that, at that time, that was kosher. Um, the thing of play, and play leads me to a, a priori uh, view of this, which is, is also not to do only with open-endedness, but with layering. But I think boring architecture is that which only has a very narrow number of layers, irrespective of what its expression is. And has a, I think layering, and the, 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 which then, of course, leads to um, the augmented reality then yes and I, in fact I was delighted because in my rapid fire thing two weeks ago I mentioned a thing that has interested me to do but haven't done it which is the notion of having a window that looked up that could be bugged so you were looking at the view mm. outside your apartment but you could also see mm. the cricket scores or you could see Granny's cottage and, and that to me is where augmented reality then meets the known, touchable, suitable upon architecture. Because I think, 
however, however, however you project in your field, at some point the actual person will want to put their bum somewhere mm -hmm. and will want to put their foot somewhere and will want to interact with another real person, not just an inflatable one. And, and therefore the augmented reality mixing into the real realities to a point where we don't, it doesn't matter whether we recognise one or the other, in the same way that it doesn't really matter whether, to some extent, we have a room that it looks Georgian on the outside, looks plastic on the outside, looks Gothic on the outside, or looks dreaded biscuit on the outside. I mean, it does matter, but not for your inside. Uh, so I'm coming back to the issue of com what I would call combo architecture. Architecture will only survive if it can combine. If it dives back on its own backside, it will just become an old thing like, like you know, building harpsichords or something, uh, which I have distaste of. And so honesty is not really reassurance at all. Um, and virtual reality must link to stuff. Now, I've just got a couple of notes I made of you at Wolfgang. I, I think your stuff floats. I mean, one of the things that I noticed is, is that you, you have things that are floating between, not just the much discussed Vienna project, but the other projects where you have a solid ground and then the thing floats. I think that, and, and it amuses me that, that you and I competed for a building in Vienna once and, and we won it and built it and compared with your project, ours is very ploddy. It upsets a lot of Viennese architects nonetheless, but it's relative, yours was crazy, crazy, crazy. And ours is relatively, I mean, it's there, it's sort of stuff. Uh, and and, and that, that, so I have to admit that, that in the cycle of time, I'm now the old reactionary who could put together a building that they could build. And you did the wild scheme, and I wondered if, I'm, I'm sort of shocked by that realisation somehow. Um, and then the moving bridge, we must compare notes on moving bridges because we did a moving bridge scheme, but we didn't animate ours. Damn! <laughs> Damn! Uh, I was, yeah, I just to answer the question that Rao raised, it was in, in uh, we, we I, the graph thing was in Estonia, it was in Tallinn. We found ourselves in Tallinn for some desperate reason, whatever it might have been at the time. But the business of human interaction, I mean, again, back to, to, to Pascal, I think that what you're now sensing is many, many layers of interest. Back to layering. Many, 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 many layers of interaction, some of which I think it's always very useful, and probably always will be, that we, don't, that we cannot fully understand every layer. I think there have to be some that are almost become religious or mystic or presumed or sniffed. Some, I mean... I would hate a world where everything could be totally itemised and logged. What would you do then? It's like saying, you know, uh, uh, it's like that joke that used to be on English. You know, computer says. So when you're going out for the evening, it says, computer says you must go to the Tong Wang restaurant because all, all the statistics suggest that is what you are intending. Instead of occasionally going and finding you've gone to a bum meal. Life is also made up of disappointment. I think you, I'm just being perverse here on this point. Um, uh, 
made something about Keith said designing, which of you said designing buildings is stagnation. I'm <laughs> still too much of an architect <laughs> to fully accept that. I could, you could accept it intellectually, but again, the bum hits something, the arm hits something, the eye stops on something. It doesn't matter whether that we call that architecture, but it's a something. And you can, all, you can, you know, when you go and pee, you pee into something. You can't yeah. quite digitalize that. There's uh, maybe there's some amazing <laughs> radiating thing that goes between your pee and where it lands and vaporizes it. Maybe that will come, but at the moment it does land in a something, and that goes somewhere. And you know. Uh, do you think that the intellectual cutting edge should be around designing toilets then? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you were feeding me uh, some <laughs> briefing notes a day or two ago and it said, where do you have your ideas? And I said, on the toilet. Suddenly all is relaxed and you're not inhibited by you know, what, what student audiences or, or clients or anything might say. Uh, I think I have a little gripe which is that when you talk about the future, you know, the future being in technology, there is at this particular moment a kind of narcissism, I would call it, uh, which uh, I hate to slate, but AD magazine, which I, ha I love dearly as an institution, but it's got increasingly boring. These people who can, you know, like somebody has done a slightly different version of the thing being able to do that. And then four issues on, somebody's done another version of the thing, being able to do that, and somebody's kind of banging on about it in indecipherable language. I find that tedious. I'd rather read the Hi-Fi magazines. Uh, I think they're rather the same. Or, Maca you know, when I was small, there was a thing called Meccano magazine. And it would tell you in, in, in tedious detail how to, you know, put piece 93A with a screwdriver onto piece 42B. And I sort of feel that current AD gets a bit like that, where it gets immersed into the... T I don't want to know that. I want to know what it leads to, and then what can we can do with it. But maybe I'm, in that respect, being very middle-brow. I'll stop on that. Perhaps, because we have stopped there. Maybe, we, maybe it is quite interesting to talk about some of this technology and augmented reality and come back to mm. the other, all the other notes that you've got here. But where... Do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, the sort of position between you must be in your mind how you operate in the virtual digital and mm. where that does push into the physical mm. and the real. So the, the, the project that I showed, Hyperality, is a, a self-initiated project that I um, raised a bit of money for on you know, through crowdfunding and then put the rest in myself. Um, and it's supposed to be kind of a critical view of the future. So I'm, I'm suspicious of technology in many ways. I think a lot of the motivations by the, the way we're kind of introduced to these future technologies are uh, kind of questionable. And I think a lot of uh, the things that we're unquestionably accepting about the role of technology in our lives is leading us down a path which might not improve our quality of life. In fact, it might offer the very opposite course. Um, so I kind of offer these films up as kind of a, uh, a, a tool to, to draw people in and to, to try and uh, make as widely as accessible as possible and get them involved in talking about what kind of future they want. So I think, um, and, and the point about the kind of virtual physical divide, 
I'm by no means a proponent of augmented reality. In fact, I'm kind of quite critical of, of that whole world. But um, one of the beautiful things about the technology is that it does, it's able to combine the physical and virtual. So these people are walking through real cities, they're, walk, they're sitting on real chairs, but you know, once it's out of your grasp, it can look like anything, it can be anything. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting opportunity and I purposely set bits of the film in very kind of mundane, everyday environments that I see every day because we don't have the luxury of living and, and and existing in the context of beautiful architecture. Most of the time it's actually like rubbish architecture that we spend our lives in. And you know, I'm kind of interested in the possibilities of consumer tech on that. Um, so that's, yeah, that's my <laughs> Does it in, I think it's in really the whole world, the augmented reality world is an important one and architects should be part of that conversation, I imagine. You know, the world, yeah. it spatializes a whole series of actions. Yeah. There's, there's no job there. I mean, I don't make any money from it. I, I get some commissions based in similar areas, but it's very, very, uh, there's no established role um, of doing that kind of thing. But the more I spend time in different industries, the more places I can see that they're missing the architect in that situation. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, about expanding the field of operations is, is a critical part of what we should be doing. And I think, yeah, the, the more we focus back down on on you know the history of architecture and what we think it should be, the less we'll be able to survive or well maybe survive but not be very interesting, you know. Mm. <laughs> I think that was something I saw from your work, Raoul, you're expanding that field of operation of the architect, but also it seems not controlling it. You know, you're not saying they're saying this is the way in which it should be, where which architects can often do. It's actually enabling using your thinking to help enable others to start to problem solve. Is that right and where you see it going? Uh, yes, although I, my mind has drifted a bit in Peter Cook peeing. And I was trying to kind of wonder where he did it. And I just have to tell you one thing, because some years ago I was with the late Dalibor Vesely in, in, in Sweden, and we, were, we, we escaped a conference, and we, we went, of course, to see the Chapel of Leverance, one of the great works of Leverance. And at the end of our observations and intellectual analysis, he said, I have to take a piss. And he started peeing against the wall of the chapel. I said, Dali, boy, you can do this. <laughs> yeah, why not? It's some stone, he's not going to know. <laughs> so, so we ended up both peeing against this famous building and discussing the merits of leverance, early leverance, right, of course. Sorry, but it had to, had to come in as a <laughs> shaping architecture. Uh, Yes and no. I, 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 on the one hand, I, I believe we are uh, more and more, I, I would say on an urban scale, we are working without form. In fact, we work with systems and, and we give kind of instructions to systems to, to behave in a certain, in a certain way. And there's a, you could say there's one line of thought where you say, well, the, 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 uh, it sounds like form follow function, but I don't really mean that. But you know, the form comes out of the way that the systems interact. I believe that's where cities are now. And, uh, but at the, on the other hand, I started to become quite worried, and I think that's not true at all. So just a few days ago, we were running a big EU project that has, has to do with integrated systems in a range of cities across Europe. And <coughs> we had a room full of experts, and at the end I said, well, we have to watch, we have to go for two things. One, one is to go for poetics and the other one is for numbers because there were no projects. There was a room full of experts discussing efficiency 
and system integration and all that. And there was, and nobody dared to, to make a visionary approach. So I said, we need to tell stories. So we need a poetics. On the other hand, we need the hard numbers. Otherwise, we don't, we don't know what we're doing. Probably the hard numbers is, is, is equating uh, <clears throat> what, what Peter talked about, putting your dumb bum somewhere. At some point, you have to make uh, a decision, and something has to has to be uh, real and decided. And I'm I'm moving now more and more, and I just introduced this terminology again towards what I would call a symbolic form. That means in in the complexity of you know, weaving systems together and all that. At some point, you have to say, well, hold on, we, I, I like it like this, and, and that's what I mean with a symbolic form. And that becomes then a narrative, and all these discussions with other experts and all that, and. Uh, <clears throat> And I, I believe more and more this is this is this is necessary. So that's it's a double answer. But I believe this this symbolic form is is, is becoming the aesthetic section. So symbolic form is becoming extremely important again. And Wolfgang, do you, how do you feel with this idea of technology? Where's your play with the world, either as a sort of practitioner or as responding to it? I mean, I, I couldn't show too much of the of the figure projects we are do, doing, the, mm. the interest-based projects. They, in fact, what they are doing is they are addressing exactly those issues that uh, there are tracking systems involved. Uh, there is an, a communication basically mm. looked for between the digital entity and the physical entity. And I think for, for us, this is really a relevant project. Why is it so relevant? Because there is a, a mistrust building up in me or a not understanding of the environment uh, building up. I do not understand what does that carpet have to do with me, what does the wood on the walls have to do with me, what, why are our environments like that, the way they are, and why do we make, duplicate them, why do we repeat them? And it seems to me that, that the making of architecture to a certain extent also is, let's say, it is somehow a repetition or, or a, a reinterpretation of that what was before. Now I'm looking for a point uh, where we can get rid of it, rid of wooden floors. They don't have connections to us necessarily. Carpets don't have connections to us. And it is in the end what the, your film somehow information is applied on is exactly that layer which I wonder does it need to stay the same or where does it develop towards to if you apply information on it, if you apply images on it, it's always the seat of a bus behind it, it's always a garment behind it, there's always this real world behind it which does in fact not change. So I, I wonder what is going to happen with that and how could that change. So there's, there's certainly a challenge in that. Other than that, I'm, I'm, somehow, I'm somehow wondering what the field of architecture in fact is. Is it making buildings? Yeah, it is making buildings. Uh, what other formats do we have? It's teaching architecture, it is writing about architecture. But, but is there, and Peter, you were mentioning it, is, is there an architecture which is done just out of joy, like Bosch's uh, designs of the worlds? I mean, this was 500 years ago. Mm. It was pure joy. and. I always imagine, for example, Constance's world or Constance's proposition of a new Babylon did have a major deficit. 
or a major problem. He never could describe the figures in there. He never would be able to communicate what that is. And I always think that a combination of Constant and, and Bosch would be the ideal one where <laughs> Bosch's figures inhabit Constant's world. I'm, I'm somehow I'm really sorry that I couldn't propose that to him, but but here things come together, and I would not I would not want to focus alone on technology. As I think that our world is moving in every direction. It's moving fast into the past, into the future. It's permanently moving in all directions. It is screaming. It is bent. It's torn apart. Uh, but I don't see technology as the only factor. We, we are having ex minds which are expanding in all directions. That's how I see it. Technology is, is, is a part of it, but it's also the augmentation of our self-understanding or of our minds which are relevant. There's the argument of architecture, or, or starting with architecture as an excuse. Uh, what's interesting about Constantine was a painter. And that may be the reason why he, he had simply hadn't been trained to think in terms of the, the relationship of a figure to think. I see easy answer, but maybe not the right answer, I don't know. But I think what's marvelous about architecture as a, as, a, as a starting point is that there's a wonderful, perhaps again, um, unfashionable view of, of studying architecture, which is an old sort of English thing of the dilettante or of the... Of the uh, man of all parts, or the, the, the Renaissance. I mean, starting with architecture, which, which has the arrogance to associate itself with sociology, art, uh, mechanics, blah, 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 all, the, all these different things. And then, but then many just stay within that, whereas in fact you take that as a starting point and say, I can go off and, like you're doing, into one territory or another territory or another territory, or com any combination where the architectural starting point was quite useful in giving you an excuse to, to, to look in s several directions, should you wish to take it. That's why my card about more and more architecture schools at the moment trying to draw you back into a commonality. But if you take the reverse role of it, so that, you know, when somebody says, well, you know, we have X number of students, but X percent of them don't do architecture, it would be really marvellous if the percentage went up and up and up and up and up and up, you know. Uh, because, but if those things were then excuses to look laterally. So I think it's a, there's a sort of historical cycle, too. We were talking in the anteroom, or somebody mentioned about uh, Christopher, you mentioned about Christopher Wren wanting to be uh, a mathematician or astronomer or whatever he was, and, 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 and so on and so forth. And you do discover these figures you know, like uh, Russian composers that were actually admirals and things. But now it's, it, there's a pressure to be professional, to get all your exams and be professional and to have a sort of official thing. Whereas, in fact, I think creatively, the other, the other thing would be much more exciting if you can survive. But maybe you can survive better if you say, I started off as an architect. Uh, and now I breed fish, but on the side I play the piano, and actually I'm experimenting with this way of uh, making a new type of urinal. <laughs> Just to keep it dirty. We come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm deliberately doing that. Uh, 
I think that's that there are there are many ways of looking looking at the thing, and then back to to the preoccupation of my wife's, which is that, that, that beauty has not been discussed often enough in in architecture. That you're hinting or accepting, and I can I have a long memory. I can remember when you used to make very very beautiful objects in your in your post Leibskin period. Uh, Still there. Extremely beautiful. Or maybe you still do, sort of, you know, secretly in a carrier bag. I don't know. <laughs> up, up in Kentish Town. Uh, you see, so that, that uh, in a sense, you take as a hair professor, you know, you take it as a responsibility to be dealing with urbanism and then explode it. But you make beautiful objects, or you used to. Mm -hmm. and, and that intrigues me because it then raises the whole issue I, is, is your brain process similar to when you're making those beautiful objects or when you're analysing layers of city? I'm not sure. I think you are voicing an uncomfortable but germane point, which is within all that spread, occasionally you need to have, as it were, floating bullet points. Where you say, hold it, hold it, guys. This is great. What do you think of Peter's? It doesn't system? matter whether it's a stuffed dog or something else. Yes, it's very strange because it, <coughs> I've, you know, I've cleared out the, the, the Cora London space because we moved to Berlin. So now there's a room which is a kind of compacted version of, of Cora, and the, and the compactness is, is basically a mass of these earlier models, right? Cement models, because the rest, you know, kind of the paper <laughs> digital stuff is, is kind of takes up a very small amount of this space, but all that, the, the rest is kind of three dimensional construct that is, uh, needs to be moved somewhere. Um, but I, strangely enough, the, there's a, I found I've been unpacking boxes that were, or even models that were cast by interns that we had never even opened. Uh, and out come beautifully models with some sort of topological studies of skins and with holes in them. And I, want, I was thinking, what the hell were we trying to do then? And now they, they come back full circle because the, these holes are, of course, about the, the unconsciousness. Once you talk about consciousness, right, which we're doing now more and more because of technological progress, and the unconsciousness becomes an extremely important thing as well, you know, the kind of not knowing. It's very human, the unconsciousness, and probably the most powerful thing. So suddenly I realize these holes in these cement models actually are telling something. They are telling a story. So I'd like to continue with, with that again. So we started in uh, uh, cement, uh, a sub-department in my institute in, in Berlin, casting cement. But with this kind of view, and we really have to understand with the hand how we do that. And why I think, maybe one more bit, why I think the, the beauty of such objects is important because with um, architecture, of course, we place ourselves in the world. Right? Architecture has always been a kind of cosmological tool of the imagination, and uh, and with the technologies we have now, it's, it becomes so much more more difficult. Uh, in in the last few years, I've moved around a lot of in, in kind of so-called smart city fields, and there are no architects at all there, none, none. So. You, you can you know, walk around and say, where are the architects? They should be here, and absolutely nobody is there. And it's very disturbing, because then you think, wow, for years I've been kind of fighting right, against the architectural profession, and kind of the AA, many of the years AA. Now I realize we have a real role to play, actually, because otherwise it's just people that handle these techno technological things, and they just move. They just make the cities. They actually make our lives. There's no way you can kind of 
change to do something about it. So I think these, 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 you know, these moments of beauty are very powerful because people don't understand but I did all these complex things. I did just buy an iPhone because it's beautiful. I did. And, and <laughs> I use it almost not. So I think this beauty touches people's emotions. And ultimately, that's where we can achieve something. That's where you can move as a society along. Who is occupying the world of... You said there's no architects in the smart cities. Who, who are the smart cities? All technology? Experts, mayors that want their city to, to have a certain branding. We are the smart city, or something. There's now too many of those. So, um, big companies that want to sell their systems, and they're kind of running behind the digital revolution. Uh, like you were saying already, there are huge, yeah. huge markets out there. Then companies that, like car companies, that are running behind the digital revolution. They realize that the cars are not the future. So something else is going to be the future, and so on and so forth. So everybody's crowding into these kind of fields of the. And one of the big issues is that I discovered only now that I'm teaching at the TU are the colleagues of mine that deal with deep learning. Deep learning, so there's, you know, machine learning. And it's really incredible. So, you know, then comes along Mark Zuckerman, who gives them, you know, benevolently, but gives them the four most pow the powerful computers in, in the world. And here, study a little bit further. And so there are people around us that really now, that, that design these, these, these systems of the future, you know, robots that can sense, right, and kind of have an emotion. And then make a judgment of that. These are these things happen in academia, and <clears throat> I think this is a very strong uh, movement. But maybe one last bit there. I just finished reading this, this small little booklet called Six Lessons on uh, Physics, but it's Italian uh, quantum physics, which goes through the kind of big discoveries of the world right now: dark holes and you know zipping particles. And then by six, lesson six, I, I started thinking, well, what? He's not talking about climate kick, you know, climate change, right? What's going on? He's not. You know, this is a big thing. And then, of course, in the middle of, in the middle of the sixth lesson, he starts talking about. He says the biggest challenge we have is, of course, climate change because we're not winning, right? We're not managing. And then, just in the last few sentences, he says, "But actually, we're not going to be around anyway because of our human body. This is where I think you're going. And it's changing so far that there is no we at all." So he ends in a, in a quite pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's easy to get kind of pessimistic. I, obviously, I, I'm That's kind of true, yeah. thinking a lot about the future and trying to understand the trajectories that that we're we're going on. And and on one side, you can see maybe it's okay if this all this stuff happens, but then you look back and you're like, well, that's never happened in the world ever. So it's quite difficult to imagine how all this data is not going to be exploited. And you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, but as you were saying, like it's there's all this potential for architects to be in the room in different situations. So we could be asking, why are we not? It's a very strange thing that we're not. And I think maybe part of it could be to do with about how we generate and promote our ideas. That you know, there's maybe lots of ways that we could be accessing larger audiences and like presenting work. And I mean, I kind of, I started working in internet video. That's my medium, right? But it's great. You know, 4.5 million views. And it's just, uh, I could never do it through yes. uh, creating an image or making a drawing. I could just, there's just no chance. And also I just do it all in my computer. It's not, yeah. I don't have any, I don't have any network, you know? I mean, I do kind of now, but it's not. So I was kind of, I'm sort of interested about why we neglect that so much about, about how to kind of promote yourself or promote your ideas. Because at the end, we're only really harming ourselves. The way in which you communicate your ideas is quite, 
it's quite beautiful. I mean, I don't know mm. whether it comes across as well, but when you, the narratives you build around some of the projects and the way in which you describe them takes them from just being blind architecture to actually being something that one starts to understand how it inhabits, how it starts to live with you. I mean, I, from reading some of the things on your website, and um, you spoke, what's, what's the term you use? You talk about generative associations that seems to come out of the conversation. It makes it, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as an idea and how you present your work. I, I need to come back to, to those different models which exist next, classically next to the architect. Perhaps it's that of the writer, that one, one is able to develop ideas which are not necessarily bound to a commercial environment and uh, that certainly is very relevant in our work and we are exactly looking for that, that that architecture has the potential for a critical and cultural text without necessarily acting within the commercial market and I think this is a re very relevant moment uh, coming back one more time to, to Constant and to New Babylon I mean, Constant and the situation is they were rejecting education. <laughs> they were rejecting universities, but they, they were fully relying on creativity. And they were relying on a time where there's no work anymore. It's the time after work because all the work is done by machines. Strange enough, those moments, they come closer and closer to us. They were projected in the 70s but they seem to become real now. And what did Constant imagine? What would one do then when there is no work anymore? It was creative games. We would have creative games and the typical Babylonian would be involved in creative games and producing a creative environment, thus being the prototype of the, of the architect par excellence but outside the commercial model. Now, there was a projection in the 60s and 70s. It was possible to think of a development of an intellectual field of intellectual spheres which are not bound to the commercial. And this is what I think should be reconsidered. It should be re-injected in the discourse that not everything is depending on markets, on clients but there is freedom and space for thoughts which can be developed without being ordered, which can exist without necessarily being conformed with the system or bringing the system further. So it is, in, in a way, it's also the model of, of the artist being not synchronized with the system. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.